Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. I'm getting ready to start middle school, and I'm worried that I won't have any friends. I was worried about being bullied or my locker not opening in gym class. I'm a little worried about the classes and how they'll be hard on me. This year, as an 8th grader, I get to help the incoming 6th graders. I'm excited about being an incoming 6th grader because I'll feel more grown up. Well, middle school is a time of transition. I think I heard the word worry in there at least seven or eight times. There's a lot to worry about when you move from elementary school to middle school, to junior high. And we're going to ease some of those fears today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Uh, John, I can remember when Trent and Troy uh, started middle school. I think it's all that apprehension. You know, they don't really have enough confidence yet. They're trying to figure out what they're good at, what they're strong uh, at doing. And there's a lot of doubt. And that's certainly true on the boys' side. I can remember, I mean, some older kid kind of hit me in the chest in a PE class because he was defining for a friend of his how well built he was and how <laughs> and you skinny were, you I were was. Exhibit a. <laughs> like he cracked my sternum. <laughs> and then he said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you couldn't take a light punch, oh. <laughs> which made it all the worse. Yeah, but that is, that's kind of middle school. That's what happens. I mean, guys, boys are trying to figure out the pecking order and who's who and who's a good athlete and all that stuff. And uh, it's rare for a, a young man not to go through some kind of torture there. But <laughs> It's it's great to hear yeah. what many schools are doing, like in that clip we heard where older kids are mentoring the younger kids. Yeah, like we didn't that. have a lot of that. Going no, out. none the mentoring of that. When wasn't I was healthy. in middle school, it didn't happen that way. Right, and today we want to give you some tools to help you guide your child and you as a parent through these transition phases, like from elementary school to junior high school. And uh, you may be going through that right now. And we have some wonderful guests, uh, the Cathermans, Jonathan Catherman, who has two sons, Reed and Cole. And Reed and Cole are both middle school survivors. <laughs> so that's a good thing. And uh, they have lots of great insights to share with us today. They do. And they've, uh, they've written a book called The Manual to Middle School, the Do This, Not That Survival Guide for Guys. And uh, we're so glad to have them here. It really is a, an insightful book. Jonathan's been here before. And uh, it must be fun to have his boys with him on this Yeah, trip. welcome to Focus. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> this is kind of unique, uh, you know, having a dad with his two uh, almost adult sons, right? You guys are on that pathway now. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 15. I'm 18, so I guess I am. Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you can vote. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but welcome, and it is a good thing. How did you decide to, to bundle all this advice into one book for young people, uh, young men particularly, who are about to enter middle school or who are in the throes of middle school? Whose idea was it? So you remember when I was here last time, we were talking about the manual to manhood, and I had written that book for my sons. Right. And shortly after returning back home, and, and I was contemplating what's our next project, these two guys were sitting at the dining room table over dinner talking about middle school because Cole was just leaving elementary school, headed into middle school, and Reed was just leaving middle school, headed into high school. So over a couple of dinners, <laughs> it was moment. like the what should I do, what shouldn't I do, and advice yeah. was flying, and I looked at each at the guys, and I go, hey, I think we got another book here, guys. <laughs> yeah, right, no kidding. So, Reed, let me ask you, in that transition, especially into middle school, if you can reach back that many years now, what were those, uh, those feelings, those emotions that you had? Reed. It's all good. Um, so going into middle school, 
Um, so I think it was kind of stressful. It was like, what am I going to do? I'd been in elementary school, how many, since kindergarten to fifth grade, so that's about six years. That that was where my home was. That's what I was comfortable with. Going into uh, sixth grade and into middle school, it was like, it's a much bigger school. There's way more kids there. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm worried that I'm going to mess up or that I'm not going to make any friends. Well, sure. So yeah. fear is one yep. thing. You yep. don't, the unknown. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Cole? Um, I luckily had Reed to help me out. Yeah, so, so you're I, watching. I had that session of like, <laughs> okay, what do I do once I get there? So you were observing your older brother. Yeah. Parents don't always get that. No. We don't know if you're watching. Uh, I had to watch. <laughs> I was freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> and what was causing you strain or anxiety? Lockers were scary. Like you had to put your stuff in a box that was like behind a metal door that you can't always open. That's just freaky. Yeah. And then you had to remember a combination, yeah, which you numbers. thought you'd never remember, right? Yeah, exactly. I can remember that. Also, just the the kind of the, for the guys particularly, that pecking order, what I alluded to in the opening Mm -hmm. is true, isn't it? I mean, it's maybe unspoken, but you're trying to figure out who's who, what group do you fit in. Uh Um, Did you have some of that anxiety as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, Because I had a friend, uh, I think he was in seventh grade at the time, but he was talking to me about how like guys are going to, you know, find out who they are and like they'll kind of like mess around with you if, if you know yeah. right kind yeah. of what happened to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah if they think that you're weaker that you're smaller or you're a little yeah. bit different then they'll kind of like you know target mess you. around with you yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. i mean that's not it's, sometimes that's very serious so i don't want to make too much light of that but yeah. there is something about the male orientation that you know you just you're testing each yeah. other you're trying to figure out but, who, who's yeah. the guy he was nice to me uh, and he kind of like helped me through that and he was like oh yeah i'll make sure that nobody messes with you yeah, yeah. well you know jonathan being the parent let's go to that part why is it important for parents to even pay attention this is kind of the stuff that normally happens and do we really have to be that engaged because kids are kids and they're going to learn the ropes well these are some really critical formative years both for uh, how they are thinking and how they're acting. And going through middle school, I think a a lot of it is a whole bunch of experimenting on does this work and should I repeat it and does this not work and how do I never do this again? So as a parent, to give our kids the kind of advice that we believe is going to work, but we can't force them. It's kind of like you can direct, but you can't steer for them. And so what kind of direction can we give our children as they make that big transition between elementary school and middle school to set them up for the best potential success? Now, they're going to have to give it the go. But if they don't know, often today they'll pull back and just not even engage. Mm, right. So I'm going to give them the best advice I can and, and share with them in any way I know how without forcing it down their throats so that it's their experience, not my told-them-to experience. Yeah. I think that every parent needs to go through the sharing versus forcing their kids. And I would think that you've got to build that relationship so it's not just happening at at the middle school transition. I mean, in other words, the happening is the conversation. You've got to build, as a parent, you've got to build that trust and that open dialogue. And how did that work for you three? I mean, let's really unveil it here. Did you guys have a good kind of communication line with dad? Yeah, we've always been open with our family. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter. There's no huge walls between us. Don't you think that's the ground floor? you got to be able to communicate. What happens in a family where there is a lack of that communication? There's a distrust between the parent and the kid, and there's not the ability to, like, talk about your feelings to the parent, which is always not good for the kid. It's hard to speak up, and, like, that can build up, and that can crumble relationships in a matter of 
time, you know. So I'm sure you've had friends that fit that description. Do you guys mm-hmm. talk about it at that level when you're sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade? Do you guys did you remember any conversation? That's kind where, of behind closed doors. But yeah. then once we're once like I, I realized that once I went into high school, that's where we started to become comfortable talking about family life and like what's actually going on and the yeah. truth, not just like brushing it over like, oh yeah, everything's fine. This happened, but it's okay. Yeah. But yeah. in high school, more it's like, I need help. School. Right. This is what's going on. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, Jonathan, let me go to the faith component because that plays an important role, obviously, the role in Christian homes. And uh, I guess the right question is what role does faith play in preparing for middle school? How does a parent make sure that their kid is grounded? How many moms, let me just speak to the moms listening, mm-hmm. were, are fearful <clears throat> of that moment, especially when their son, and we're addressing sons today, uh, but you can apply these things to daughters, obviously. But when their sons are making that transition, I'm sure a lot of moms are going, wow. Right. So let's kind of go back and look at faith. The context of faith means you've got to believe in something that isn't necessarily always seen, and, and it can't always be proven. Now think about this. If you are consistent in your faith in your family through elementary school, and then you get into middle school with your kids, and they hit that 13-year-old age, and let's just call it what it is. It's cray-cray. 13 is the craziest (laughs) age ever. And you're thinking, what did I do wrong? Because now everything I've shown them seems to be thrown out the window or in my face or, or I can't do anything right as a parent. And don't take it personal, but to be faithful through the time. The message you shared growing up to this time, the message you're going to share as they move through those, some of those chaotic ages of their life, that, that middle school and high school time. So the context of faith, love the Lord your God, love your family, be consistent. I think that's the biggest thing. Don't try to then do a massive course change because you now have a 12, 13, 14-year-old. You've got to just simply be faithful through your process that has worked to this point and continue. Because, well, okay, raise a child up in the ways they should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. Notice in that scripture, it doesn't say in the middle. It says when they're old. <laughs> yeah. if, 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 they were to, if you were to add to that, which we're not going to, but it says raise a child up in the way they should go. And when they're in middle school, they'll go crazy. And then <laughs> when they're old, they'll come back around. Yeah. But the reality is this is a tough time. So the faith component in the family is consistency. Yeah, I like that, and that's probably the best way to approach faith is that consistency so your kids see it, right? And they may not always follow it, I guess is my point. I mean, your boys are doing well, it seems, and there are families where there's going to be struggle. And John, uh, you know, you homeschooled your kids, so that's a, a whole different environment. But when uh, your young people are in public school, you're being exposed to a lot of things that maybe your faith contradicts. What about that component with mm. friends, and what were some of the drama aspects of your junior high years? One thing we saw as a parent observing our boys and their friends is they begin to find their voice. And guys, you can now speak to this. Because one thing that we expect in our family is that you can say anything, you just need to do it respectfully. Mm. And agree or not agree with you, well, we'll still hear you out. There's nothing you can do to make me love you any less, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that plays into the component of faith to parents because that's the way the Lord has a relationship with us. Think about how many times we've disappointed God, yet he loves us no less. In fact, I'd have to believe every day there's more there considering grace and, and forgiveness. And as a parent, we're supposed to be modeling that. Now, these guys take that message and go to school, and their friends are all finding their voice, but there's not always that respect factor there. Because I think we've had a few conversations yeah. about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, like, it's not, like, one particular drama. It can just be, like, spread throughout middle school. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's a theme of, like, 
if you don't do something that somebody wants or if you're doing something different but you used to be friends, they're going to like kind of poke and prod at you if you aren't exactly the way that they thought you were that they want you to be. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that's got to be some pressure. Yeah. Social media is big pressure yes. as well. So, yeah. I mean, how do you manage that uh, with uh, your friend groups? Luckily, in middle school, that was when I really like Instagram was, I mean, it already started out, but it wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't allowed yeah. to have one until a little bit later on into uh, middle school. Yeah. How about Hell you, on the other hand, What was going on? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. A uh, little more uh, impact with social media? I mean, I didn't really care about social media that much until I got older. I mean, like, well, what about your friend group in junior high? Did they were they already diving in? All was my it, friends had social media. Like Snapchat was a big thing for everybody. Right. I didn't get that for much after everybody else did. So I was kind of behind on the curve. Right. Yeah. One of the things that I remember uh, seeing in the book is that you had a group that you called the squad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was pretty important to you. Yeah, I liked that friend group. And then after a while, kind of everybody just split off. And How did you form, though? I mean, what's the genesis of that? So um, it was just a bunch of people with similar likings. And then I... Uh, met one person from the squad and then I kind of got like grouped in and then it just grew from there started out with like five people and grew to like almost 16 Mm -hmm. amount and yeah it just went from there and then in the end of like eighth grade middle way through eighth grade it kind of just split off because everybody had different classes and yeah but that's a tribe that you get to be a part of yeah particularly important as you enter middle school this focus on the family broadcast will continue in just a moment Hey, it's Jim Daly here. Just so you know, it's time, time for a challenge, time to not only be a Christian, but live your faith. Bring Your Bible to School Day is the next Live It Challenge on October 5th. Nationwide, kids will team up to share the gospel at their schools. To learn more or register your children for the first time, visit bringyourbible.com. His word gives us confidence. So let's live it up, bringyourbible.com. It's time to level up. Give your kids a safe, faith-focused, and biblically-based community, and so much more. Join the Adventures in Odyssey Club. Club members get on-demand access to the exciting Adventures in Odyssey series, including more than 900 episodes. With faith-building activities, parental controls, and a safe online community, the Adventures in Odyssey Club could be your best adventure yet. Learn more and start your free trial at adventuresinodyssey.com radio. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Jonathan, how much intentionality did you and your wife apply to the friend development side? I mean, these are the pillow talks parents have about. Do you, right, do right. you know? Do you know the friend Reed has? Aren't you worried about him? I mean, have you noticed what he says and does over at our house? <laughs> okay, so, so Jonathan, to that come point, on, you yeah, got to do something. Point. Here's something Eric and I did. When the boys were still in elementary school, we started telling them things that, that we knew would stick and one day would, would, they'd have to contemplate. One of the phrases we say is, be more influential than you are easily influenced. Mm. And I would believe the best compliment a parent could hear would say, will you have your child spend more time with my son, my daughter, because your child will be a good influence on him. I've never quite understood. I don't want you hanging out with little Tommy over here because he's a bad influence. Sorry, anybody's name's Tommy. (laughs) No, but I I don't want you hanging out with that kid because he's a bad influence. Basically, I've just told my sons, that other child, that other middle schooler is more influential on you than you are on yourself. 
and more influential on you than we can be. So I gave them the power. Mm-hmm. Be more influential than you are easily influenced. That means you can be friends with anybody. Right. I and, like that. And possibly influence them for the positive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And did that work out for you guys? How did yeah, you apply that? Sure. When did that light come on that, okay, I get what dad's yeah, telling me? The way that they, they raised us with those uh, sayings, it just helped us find people who were like who were kind of close to what we liked. Like I like theater in middle school so i found people like that but i also wasn't afraid of like oh are they into something different or something that's a little bit sketchy no i can influence them more than they will influence me i won't do anything that i would not want my parents to not see or that i wouldn't want my parents to not hear me do like i would want to do or what i'm trying to say is like I would do anything with my friends that I would do with my family, you know. Right. I wouldn't want so them to you be wouldn't do anything ashamed, that you right? wouldn't do with your yeah. fa- with your family yeah. watching. Yeah. I mean, that's a good yeah. axiom, and that's a good rule of thumb to follow. Yeah. Did you always follow it? Did you always follow it? <laughs> <laughs> big reveal. Yeah. No, I, pretty much. Yeah. You know, it's just sometimes those are difficult spots. And yeah. in junior high, what typically uh, young people lack is the confidence to be that influencer. So Jonathan, as a father, how how could you, even in addition to what you said, which is one thing, half the time, and I don't know about you boys, but half the time you're not even sure your sixth grade or seventh grader is actually listening. You know, they're doing right. something else and you think they're hearing you, but I'm on behalf of many parents that are having these discussions with them. Sometimes it sounds like a lecture and they kind of mm-hmm. turn off rather than a dialogue. Is, is that fair, Cole? Uh, that's fair. You're sometimes. reacting to that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sometimes it's like I'm in a bad mood or something. I don't want to listen to what he has to say, but it's usually important, but it's just kind of going in one year and out the other. And that's why you kind of have to repeat it sometimes. Even yeah. if it gets annoying, it's still in there somehow. And then mm-hmm. you remember that and it's let me ask you guys this question how as young people and you know fresh off of the junior high experience i mean you're 15 Mm -hmm. so that's not long ago no what would you say in coaching parents how can we do a better job communicating yeah i think that like you got to uh communicate to your child or to your middle schooler through love and understanding and like understand where they are talk to them, ask them, or instead of saying, go do your homework or go read your book, you, you know, ask them, how can I help you? You know, uh, what's, what's giving you some troubles? Do you need help with that? You know? Yeah. yeah. That's good advice. You know, in the book, uh, I think it's you, Cole, there's an incident where you did some damage to the garage door. Ooh. Or was oh, that, that Reed? Was okay. That's me. That's okay. <laughs> I thought it probably me, both though. of yeah, you yeah. did some damage <laughs> to the garage door. Uh, we both on damage to the house, but yeah, I was a garage door. <laughs> kind yeah. of explain the garage door problem oh, and okay. what that taught you. So for context, I was into bow and arrows, you know, shooting the bow and arrow. Uh, don't know what got into me. Thought that it would be interesting to see what it would be like to shoot or like pull back with the opposite hand. Yeah, it doesn't work well with it bow and arrow. It doesn't work well, and you shouldn't try it with an arrow in the, you know, I don't even know in what the technical area. term, you know, yeah. but yeah. it shot house. off, went into the garage, and I was like, I'm going to die. Like, my parents are going to kill me. <laughs> Luckily, they didn't. But what happened was they were doing a renovation on their bathroom. So my smart self, not really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I went to the bathroom, got some of the like wall putty. I think it's like drywall putty, is it? Spackling. Yeah. Put it onto where the hole was and kind of like textured it, put some dirt on it to make <laughs> it blend in with the garage door, nice. you know. Uh, and then, you know, it was good for a couple of weeks. And then we were driving into the driveway and my dad was like, is that a bug on the front, dri- or front uh, door? And I was like... Uh, I don't know what that is. No, there's something on the garage door. And we went up and checked, and 
of course, it was the bump from the exit hole. Yeah, it was on the other <laughs> oh, side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whoops, what was that? Um, so then yeah. what happened? <laughs> so, okay, so instead of yelling or instead of getting mad at me, I mean, I guess he was like, why didn't you tell me weeks ago? <laughs> but um, after that, he, he taught me how to fix the problem, and we did it together, you know? Yeah, yeah. and All so right. it worked out. Yeah. So now, dad's, now, from dad's, dad's perspective, yeah. dad's perspective <laughs> driving up and seeing the garage door with this dimple on the outside, I knew immediately what had happened. And we asked, <laughs> does anybody know what happened to the garage door? And, of course, nobody could remember what I happened have, to the garage door. Thank you for that honesty. Genuinely. <laughs> yes, yes. So this is what on. I appreciate about the boys is I could see in their faces they both knew but they weren't ready to tell me. I didn't know. I, I, no I, I don't know. Okay, so either way, Reed shows up shortly thereafter and says, I have to confess, I shot an arrow through <laughs> the garage awesome. door. Yeah. And I could see the fear in his eyes, and this is where you go, okay, yes, discipline, right? Mm -hmm. So it's time to be disciplined. Now, we believe that you are either self-disciplined or somebody else has to discipline you. Either way, you need to be disciplined. And so I said, all right, well, you need to be disciplined, and the discipline on this is you need to fix the garage door the way the garage door needs to be fixed. And I will show you how, and we'll discuss from there what follows. And I was thinking, okay, it's going to depend on his attitude now. Does he you know, go off the deep end and, and tell me something, I'm so bad for making him fix a garage door? He dove right in. That garage door got the full treatment. It looks great. I mean, he had multiple layers of paint on there and kicked the whole <laughs> thing off. It was, he did a great job. So he learned a really good lesson. Now, Jim, a moment ago you asked about confidence in his middle school, a boy's in middle school, is confidence important? It absolutely is important, but how do we get confidence? Right. I believe confidence follows capabilities. So if we can teach these young men capabilities, they know they're able, that means their confidence level increases. Mm -hmm. So using, I, I, I don't care about garage doors. I mean, I do, it's my house, but he is more important than a garage door. And I know he'd already learned a lesson about firing an arrow through the house into the garage, but <laughs> it's the, what can we do with this now? Can I teach him something to make him more confident through a capability, which would be in this case, repairing the garage door and also maintain our relationship. Last thing I want to do is fix the garage door and break our relationship. Let me, on that serious subject that we, you know, handled a little lightheartedly, the, the bullying issue, because mm -hmm. boys can be really hard on each mm -hmm. other, especially at the junior high age, which is what we're talking about. Did you ever encounter that? Uh, how did you deal with it? Maybe, Jonathan, from your perspective as dad, how did you even inquire about whether or not it was occurring? So let's start with the guys here. Did you ever experience it? Um, I had a couple people who were mean to me, but it was like more of trying to pick at me to see how far they could go till I got like really mad. Yeah. And I had like patience enough to not care. But there were some kids that just really got on my nerves and I would yell back at them, like not anything bad. I would just get mad and be like, shut up, shut up, be quiet. And nothing really passed that. But some yeah. kids were just picking at you to get on your nerves so that they could like be better than you somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, it's a tough time of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, it was more name calling and just like, you know, just dumb names. And so... I think that my experience with that and my uh, memory of that is just that love and um, trying to see what's going on in their lives is more powerful than hate and trying to break down somebody else's life. Yeah. And so I've actually made a few friends. Um, yeah, not naming names, but, <laughs> you know, somebody was picking on me. I talked to them. 
saw what was going on and found out that, like, you know, they weren't having a great time in their life at that point. And we became friends. And we were still That's friends incredible. to this day. You That's know? off on yeah. that one. And then also just with other people. We may not be friends, but, you know, some other people, I've just talked to them. Uh, and it stopped because just communication and simple acts of kindness. That really jumped out at me is that you suggest even being kind to the bully, engage that Mm -hmm. person, disarm them. Mm -hmm. And that seems counterintuitive to most of us, especially at that age, but it sounds like it really worked out. Jonathan, how did you as a dad stay in touch with Reed and Cole? And I try to do that. The reason I'm asking the question is that I'm intentional about it with Trent and Troy. I'll ask them, especially during the junior high years, you know, is everything okay? Is anybody picking on you? Anybody bullying you? And their response was typically, you know, that doesn't happen at our school. And I'm going, right, it's happening. You may not be seeing it. But they never really came back with any experiences of being bullied, except one where uh, my older son was in junior high and, you know, he had a, there was a bully on the playground and he came after Trent and Trent basically penned him down and just said, stop bugging people. (laughs) And Trent's a big kid, so, I mean, he think that was the end of that, I think. But there's all kinds of ways to handle it. The one thing that, that we approached our boys is they are givers. They give to people who are in need. And when they would have a need to talk to a friend or message with a friend or see a friend because that friend is being bullied, that both the boys have experiences where they're giving care and comfort to somebody else. To me, that was then the opportunity to say, okay, yes, go help your friend or talk to your friend or message with your friend. That opened the door. Then how about you? Is everything going okay with you? And, and then they would share if something was wrong or if everything was okay. And I think that because they are confident young men, they are, they are less likely to be bullied than others. And this is a hard part for many parents, I think, to hear is because they're saying it about their own children. Well, my child's maybe not as confident as that. That's a stage. Help them work through the stage of building their confidence so they become less of a target and become the giver of comfort to others. Yeah. Well, this has been great, and it's a a good start. And I really want to encourage parents, particularly dads with their sons, to engage. And uh, Jonathan and the boys have written a wonderful book, Manual to Middle School, the Do This, Not That Survival Guide for Guys. And uh, like you said, 100 Aspects of how to you know help your young man get more confidence is just an example of that. So, if you're in that spot, maybe you're a grandparent and you have that fifth, sixth grader grandson who needs a boost. This might be a nice little gift to give to your adult son to say, "Hey, this is a good tool to use in your fathering." That's the kind of thing we want to be able to provide for you. So, uh, get a copy. We can provide that for you right here at Focus on the Family. In fact, just make a gift of any amount, and we'll send a copy of the book as our way of saying thank you. And you can get in touch, donate, and get the book and the CD that we're bundling it with when you call eight hundred A Family. Or stop by FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned. 
Your marriage can be redeemed, even if the fights seem constant, even if there's been an affair, even if you haven't felt close in years. No matter how deep the wounds are, you can take a step toward healing them with a Hope Restored Marriage Intensive. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face challenges together. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. It's not you are greater than me, I'm greater than you, he's greater than she. It's learning to see that we is greater than me. This is for the benefit of both of us. When I am sacrificial, when I lay down my life, it is for the benefit of the we. That's Deborah Faleta, who is joining us today on Focus on the Family. And your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly. Thanks for joining us today. I'm John Fuller. You know, when couples reach out to us, uh, we often see that they're struggling because their marriage isn't making them as happy as they thought it would. Yeah. It's an expectation that they bring into the marriage commitment. And uh, so many marriages break up because people are saying, I'm not happy or it's not right for me. Um, let's look at it from a different perspective. Maybe, especially for those of us who are Christian, maybe it's meant to make us better. That marriage is a design that God has set in place to help challenge us to become more selfless, more like Christ, more servant-minded. How about that? It's a tough one because we're selfish as human beings living in our flesh in this world. But as Christians particularly, we're supposed to die to that flesh every day. And there's no greater institution than marriage (laughs) to help your flesh die. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, our guest, uh, Deborah, is a professional counselor, and she specializes in relationship and marital issues. She's written two books, and the one we'll talk about today is called Choosing Marriage, why it has to start with we is greater than me. And uh, we're so glad she's here. She's married to John, and they have three children. Deborah, welcome to Focus. Thank you. It's so good to be here. So good to have you here. Uh, that we and versus me. Let's just kick it off right there. I yeah. mean, that's pretty funny. We is greater than me. That's really what it comes <laughs> down to. And a lot of people don't understand that going into marriage. Why do we, we get into marriage thinking me is bigger than we? Is well, it just natural for us to be about me? It's absolutely natural. And when you think about it as singles, who else do you have to think about when you are single but yourself? You know, what you're going to eat, where you're going to go, what you're going to wear, how you're going to spend your time. We're wired to focus on the me. And then we kind of take that into marriage and it's a reality check <laughs> so for many of us. Now, your husband, John, there's a great opening story I wanted to get to because yeah. I think he showed you sacrificial marriage before you got married. I think you're engaged. He what did he do? Did. He's in the audience right yeah. now. You're going to throw him a big shout out here. What did he do so well that got you thinking, ah, maybe there's a different maybe way to look at guy. it? Yeah. Well, when John and I were dating, and honestly, unbeknownst to me at the time, he was eating bologna sandwiches for months to cut his grocery bill down to $10 a week. Is that a problem? Just so that he could buy me an engagement ring. Oh, man. Oh, it wasn't to go, John. He Not loved you more than bologna. bologna sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> and if you show him a bologna sandwich today, I'm sure he, he would have issues. <laughs> I don't think I've eaten one of those in 40 years. Well, <laughs> It's one of the cheapest lunch meats you can buy. I, 
Calling it a lunch meet may be a little too (laughs) gracious. I don't know. But that that was a way of sacrifice. It was a way of sacrifice. And, you know, a lot of times we go into marriage and we're focused on the wedding. We're focused on the flowers. We're focused on the cake. We're focused on the engagement ring or the proposal. (laughs) But we don't understand that there's a level of sacrifice. It starts with something silly like a bologna sandwich, but really it represents something far greater that marriage is always about sacrifice. And that's something that we hear about, but we don't fully understand what that means. Yeah, and I want to say to the listeners right now, don't turn off what you're listening to, the (laughs) podcast, the radio, whatever. I mean, when you start talking sacrifice, people tune out a little bit. You're because right. I don't want to do that. But let's go from the beginning. Yeah, you and John did premarital counseling. You learned quite a bit in that. Gene yeah. and I did that. And we have uh, something called Ready to Wed that uh, Greg Smalley, the VP of marriage here at Focus on the Family, he and his wife Erin created. Yeah. And what they learned in their research was that if a couple received 10 hours of premarital counseling or more, that their likelihood of divorce was only 20%. 80% of couples that receive that kind of premarital counseling stay together. That's really critical. And let's stop there for a second. You just said 10 hours. Yeah, that's 10. That is, I mean, think about about this. My husband, to get his medical license, needed 20,000 hours of training. Wow. In order to get a driver's license, you need about 100 hours of training. To get a marriage license, how many required hours of training are there? Zero. Zero. You walk in, you sign a paper, they give you the license. And I think part of the problem, even in Christian culture, is that we believe that just because we're Christian, we are going to be good at this thing called marriage. And then we get in there and we realize, "Eh, maybe we don't have the training. Maybe we don't have the preparation. Maybe we don't have the expectations. Mm. Um, and on the right page. And that's where, you, yeah, you get dashed in your hopes and your dreams and you think, oh, I may, maybe I married the wrong person. That can be a conclusion that you're errantly making right now rather than saying, well, marriage takes work. Absolutely. And you're going to have to put some effort into it to make it healthy and make it strong. In fact, you did a survey, I think, with both single and married yep. couples. What prompted doing that? And then what was your finding? Well, I primarily work with singles at my ministry, truelovedates.com, and I'm slowly evolving into a marriage ministry as well. But it was interesting because I wanted to compare the two. What singles believe about marriage to what is actually true about marriage are very different things. And so I surveyed a thousand singles asking them to tell me, what do you think marriage will be like in these categories? Communication, intimacy, conflict, all these different categories. And then I surveyed married couples telling (laughs) me, what is marriage like in these same exact areas? And the difference in the answers was just mind blowing. Mm And it just showed me that really our expectations are so skewed. And and one of the statistics was that three quarters of single people thought that marriage would require sacrifice. A lot of us in Christian culture use the word sacrifice. Yes, marriage requires sacrifice. We use it so loosely. Right. But then when I asked them, do you think marriage will be difficult? The majority of them said, no, marriage is going to be easy. And to me, sacrifice doesn't equal easy. There's a disconnect there. There's a disconnect with what we actually expect and then the reality of what marriage is like on the other side. Then that's when you step in, you start getting disappointed again. Um, You also have a story about a reality TV show that caught my attention. I thought that was interesting. I I actually never saw this. I couldn't believe they did this. Yeah. (laughs) Describe the show's concept and what were they trying to do? There's this reality show called Married at First Sight. 
And basically, they take two complete strangers. Some psychologists match them up based on their personality and their experiences, and it's a good psychological match. So they match these two people up, and they meet at the altar. And they have a few weeks then to be married, legally married, and to figure <laughs> out at the end of these few weeks, do you want to stay married or not? Was so these it a are good two strangers who meet for the first time at the wedding. They're married at first sight. And during an episode... Why would anybody sign up to do that? You really, uh, you know, I mean, out of crazy. desperation is, is yeah, what I think. I mean, that's crazy. And, but maybe, and anyway. trusting someone else's instinct over yourself or over what you believe to be right. But at the end of these few weeks, they make their decision. And during one of the episodes, one of the participants looked straight in the camera and said, I am not happy anymore. And I deserve to be happy. You know, if I'm not happy, this isn't the right relationship. And you know, it was interesting. It's a reality TV show, but I hear that phrase all the time as a counselor. Not mm-hmm. just after four weeks of marriage, maybe after months, maybe after years, maybe after decades. I'm not happy anymore. I deserve to be happy. And that is a fallacy that we're believing. We yeah. don't deserve to be happy. And, and ultimately, happiness is not the end goal. I believe that when we do marriage right, let me just infuse some hope here. Yeah. When we do marriage right, it will lead to an unbelievable happiness. But there are going to be seasons. There are going to be days. There are going to be moments, weeks, months that you are not happy. And that's right. when your decisions are more crucial and more important than ever before. In fact, I can't remember exactly how this was described to me, uh, Deborah. but it's almost when you make happiness the goal, it's the elusive thing then because yeah. it's always the goal. It's never achieved. Right. And when it's a byproduct of the relationship, it's far easier mm-hmm. to feel happy yeah. or happiness uh, because you're content. Absolutely. And that's the point. But you mentioned in your book, Deborah, that one of the benefits of marriage is to love your spouse unconditionally. Yeah. Oh, did you just hear that? That gasp from people listening? <laughs> They're going, I never feel that, or I rarely feel that, mm-hmm. or sometimes I feel that. It's hard for us as human beings to love unconditionally. It is. Even if you're a 90% unconditional lover, you still got 10% that, you know, if you could just pick up your dirty clothes, <laughs> right. that would be really a way to show me unconditional love. Mm-hmm. But describe those battles in the bathroom and other places <laughs> when it comes to marriage where it's unconditional love as long as you put the toothpaste cap right. back on, right? You know, one thing I see also as a counselor is a lot of times... We focus on the big issues, the big catastrophes in marriage and learning how to love through the big stuff. But honestly, I truly believe that in order to have the muscle to love in those big ways, we've got to start with the muscle and loving in the small ways. And I always joke, it's kind of a joke though, but it's kind of reality in the bathroom drama that my Mm. husband and I have. I mean, you don't know how annoying it is to share a bathroom with someone until you're married. Oh, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he'll throw his clothes over my full-length mirror, you know? And then I move them, and then he puts them back. And then if you look at the different sides of our sink, mine is like a creative disaster, and his looks like the day we moved in. And whenever (laughs) my stuff starts sneaking on his side... He He scoots it it back over. And then the thing that I think is probably the most annoying is the toilet roll. You know, (laughs) uh, he has this tendency of leaving like one square left for me or maybe nothing at all. And, (laughs) And then you get there and you're like, this is what unconditional love means. I am not going to flip out about the toilet roll. So then I replace it. But then instead of putting it on the roll, I just kind of prop it. 
You know, and so leave he it can there do for his him part? to deal with. Oh, yeah. You, you <laughs> I'm just as annoying in my own way. Well, it has to come from the top, right? It has to flow it from the top, to not from, from the bottom. Top, Jim. Thank you. It We're has all three to. agreed on Now, that. the big problem is that you add kids to this equation. They right. never replace that oh, <laughs> toilet paper roll. I mean, it just keeps compounding. And there are just so many ways to embrace this idea of selflessness and sacrifice. How big of an issue am I going to make this? And what does unconditional love look like in these moments when I feel so frustrated and annoyed over these little things? Because those little muscles that we're practicing are the ones that make way for the bigger acts of love. And let me just say, I do believe that there is a big big difference between selflessness and passivity. I'm not talking about being passive, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I'm just talking about those selfless acts of love in the day-to-day grind. Yeah, well, this is Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. I'm John Fuller, and our guest is Deborah Faleta, and she's written a great book, Choosing Marriage, Why It Has to Start with We is Greater Than Me, and uh, we've got that and a CD or download of our conversation. A lot of great uh, marriage resources as well at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast or call 800, the letter A, and the word family for more. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Hey, Jim Daly here. If you like the Focus on the Family broadcast and haven't grown tired of this voice just yet, You'll love my Refocus podcast. On Refocus, I take a deeper dive with a respected thinker on different aspects of culture. I ask those hard questions that maybe they don't get that often, and I don't shy away from challenging topics to help you share God's grace, truth, and love with others. So listen to Refocus with Jim Daly on your favorite streaming app today. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. You know, Deborah, before we, I think, go more into the selflessness, because I love that theme. I think it's right for us, again, as believers, to concentrate on that. Let's mention a few of the benefits of marriage, because I think it's so positive to talk about those good things, because yeah. we're always you know, kind of barking about the tough stuff of marriage, right. even the soft stuff. But what are some of the benefits of marriage? Well, first of all, marriage makes you a better person. There you go. You know, we just talked about all that junk that starts coming to the surface when you're married. And you're just as annoying as your spouse. You just don't realize it, you know? And all that stuff starts coming to the surface. And so as you learn the process of unconditional love, as you practice the process of unconditional love, you become more like Christ along the way. So marriage makes you better. Marriage teaches you to receive unconditional love. I think that's something we forget, but there's a lot of us out there, a lot of people who have been hurt, who have been abused, who have have been victims in different ways, and they're not good at receiving Mm. unconditional love. They don't feel like they're worthy of unconditional love. But marriage helps you realize that you are worthy of that and, and that you should receive that just as much as you give it. So it teaches you to give unconditional love. It also teaches you to receive that kind of love for yourself. I think also that taking of responsibility is another thing you mentioned, which is great. And then it reminds you that uh, you need Jesus. Yeah. I mean, those are good. One of the things you said that caught my attention is a quick assessment. And you can just do this from your gut. Are you a better person today than you were before you were married? And that's a great kind of quick assessment. It is. And I love that idea. You don't need a personality profile test to determine that. You just know when you ask yourself that question, Mm -hmm. yeah, I am a better person because of my spouse. And you know what else, Jim? I really believe that if you are listening to this and you answer no, no, I'm not, then maybe the problem is 
you. And, right. and, and maybe the problem is, okay, how can I become a better person through this process of marriage? It's not that my spouse isn't making me a better person. How is the Lord working in my life? How am I allowing him to make me a better person through this process? Well, and what you're saying there is you have to have a listening soul. You yes. have to hear your spouse, not just be a roommate. Yeah. Right? So when they're speaking truth into your heart. It doesn't have to be dramatic, but it could just be, you know, it really would make me happy if you don't put your pants back over the mirror. <laughs> you know, yeah. are you and it could be more serious obviously, right, right. but it's all of that added up yeah. to whether or not you're you're in a better place. Um in fact, your grandparents, there was a little story in your book that caught my attention about your grandparents uh, and the role of selflessness yeah. getting back mm-hmm. to that theme. Yeah. And I love this because of what your grandfather asked of your grandmother every night. Describe it. Yeah, because selflessness is not a convenient thing, right? It is never convenient. It's always about sacrifice. And one story that I love so much, my grandma and grandpa grew up in Cairo. And, you know, back then there was not a refrigerator where you could just go and grab a bottle of water and and there wasn't the modern conveniences that we have today. So my grandfather was a hardworking man and every night he would go to bed and he would ask my grandmother, could you go get me a cup of water? And mind you, it was the middle of winter and Egypt isn't like freezing cold in the middle of winter, but it's cold. They don't have heating. So she has to get out of her comfortable bed and walk out and go into the cold and bring him a cup of water in the night. And after a while, this act of unconditional sacrifice every night, she finally was like, I'm going to get smart with this. You know, what if I just bring a pitcher of water and put it next to the bed? And then I preemptively meet his need. So once in the middle of the night, his phone rings and he forgets there's a pitcher of water right next to the nightstand. So he grabs that pitcher of water and he ends up completely (laughs) and utterly drenched. (laughs) Thinking it's the phone. A good plan gone awry. A good plan gone awry. Exactly. But but really, the idea is that sacrifice and selflessness is never convenient, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think sometimes we want it to be convenient. You know, Mm -hmm. we want it to be easy. We want it to be just something that happens naturally. But we don't have those muscles naturally. We're just like the Olympian that needs to train for this big thing. This selflessness and sacrifice requires training. Mm -hmm. And it's really important. I wanted to touch again on that passivity comment that you mentioned because a lot of people... And I I think I can tend to be this way sometimes, especially if you have a Christian faith, because you think by laying down your life, you're doing the right thing. But sometimes it's not from the right motivation. Describe that. Well, usually when I work with a couple and there's some level of very significant conflict, usually you find out that one person in the relationship thinks they're being selfless but they're actually being passive. They are sitting there and absorbing the conflict rather than dealing with the conflict. They are always saying yes. They are not expressing what they need. They're just absorbing it all. But you can't do that for a long period of time without the problem starting to come out in different ways. Yeah. And just because you are being passive, it's not the same thing as being selfish. So how does a passive person or a somewhat passive person get into a healthier place in their marital relationship? What should they do? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if they're hearing this going, oh, I might be more passive than I am being 
unconditional yeah. or sacrificial. Oh, yeah. So how do you determine when you're you're being passive? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you've got to get really good at communicating your needs and thinking about how often do I communicate my needs? Am I even aware of my emotions? And do I express those things to my spouse? You know, or do I just absorb it? Do I just let it go? Because it's easier not to talk about it sometimes. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of us are, the reason we're passive is rooted in different things. You know, maybe we're afraid of conflict or maybe we've been told, you know, what you've got to say isn't really meaningful. So we just were used to that. That process and and for some of us, I really believe that requires the help of a professional counselor. Um, moving to the walls that we put up to protect ourselves, and I think that happens in marriage. And I think for men, particularly, Deborah, if I could say it this way, and I want you to speak to this, but we can compartmentalize. And you, that is the definition of putting up a wall, yeah. right? So we don't want to go there, especially if we're shamed or we're booed in our marriage. We create a wall. And we look indifferent then. And I know many, I think wives right now are probably thinking, that's my husband. We're not connected. He comes and watches news, weather, and sports and doesn't really connect with me emotionally. That's a walled up husband. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely. How do you help those walls to crumble? We've got so many walls that we bring into marriage, and we bring them into marriage without realizing it based on the things we have seen in our family of origin, the way we have learned to love growing up. And we bring these walls in, walls such as isolation, like you said, boxing up your emotions, compartmentalizing, walls such as denial, where you're like, you're not really good at taking your role in the conflict or argument, withdrawal, avoiding conflict at all costs, Um, even the wall of fantasy, where, where you're allowing something else to Mm. take the place of marriage. There's so many different walls. One recent wall that came up in our marriage, which I actually don't write about in Choosing Marriage, so this is a bonus. (laughs) This is extra content. This is extra bonus content. The wall of humor. You know, sometimes my husband and I will be talking about something and I'm really serious and I'm telling him something that I need and he'll crack a joke because sometimes it's easier to deal with humor and put that wall up, make it light, make it funny, rather than embrace that and go deeper. Mm. And so we bring these walls into marriage, and and a lot of times we don't even realize how they are keeping our spouse out. You and your husband, John, a few years ago had some difficulty, I guess some stresses that come with the seasons of marriage. Uh, what was going on and how did you resolve that? You know, one of the main things that I realized in that season of our life was how we were sort of defaulting to negative behaviors. And you know, when you're stressed, he had his own stress. He was a resident and working so many hours. I was at home with two little babies and trying to juggle my career. And there's all these different things going on. And you don't realize the slow drift that begins to happen. The yeah. slow drift, kind of like when you're at the ocean and you're swimming and all of a sudden you find that you're miles away from yeah. where you started because the slow drift when you're not being active to move toward each other. And not only were we not being active to move toward each other, we were not being active to move toward God. And really, I, I talk in Choosing Marriage, I talk about this concept called the triangle theory and, and that when we move toward God, you know, if you think of about a triangle and I move towards God and, and my spouse moves towards God, the closer we each move toward God, the closer we are to each other. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, being on either side of the base, yeah. moving up that triangle toward mm. God, you're closer together. And that's something that's we're imagery. really disconnecting on. And, and so 
this is what takes work, recognizing yeah. that drift and sometimes coming to a crucial point in your relationship where you've really got to sit down and communicate about these things. And I, I think in the last couple of minutes here, that's so important and practical to say, okay, I get that triangle idea. I like that imagery. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. How do I? Yeah. And then how do I motivate my spouse right. who doesn't quite get it? Right. <laughs> how do I help him or her move closer to God, therefore closer to me? And it's all healthier. Yeah. Well, one survey I took showed me that the majority of couples are actually interacting in significant communication less than 30 minutes a week. Okay. Less than 30 minutes a week. That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. But it's too little. It's too little. And that's the problem. We're expecting to do these great grandiose things and have these intimate marriages with only 30 minutes a week. And that's where it really has to begin is learning to connect. One thing John and I have done that has revolutionized our relationship is our weekly couch time. Every Sunday night at 9 p.m., his iPhone alarm goes off because we got to schedule it. Let's be honest or we're going to forget. That's true. And it's our time to connect. It's our time to confess. It's our time to talk through what we're struggling with, what we need prayer with, how our marriage is doing, where we're at with our relationship with God. And that time has just been so crucial for us to continuing the process of moving toward God and moving toward one another. Yeah. Deborah, this has flown by. I mean, wow, we have covered so much in 30 minutes, and it's amazing. This is the kind of theme I've always talked about. Uh, you can look at improving your marriage and your relationship, but it gets down to that unconditional kind of sacrificial love that you have for your spouse. And that really starts, what I'm hearing you say, rightly, is it starts with looking at yourself. Yeah, And absolutely. it's powerful. And this isn't about saying, you are greater than me. Right? A lot of times we've confused that. It's not you are greater than me, I'm greater than you, he's greater than she. It's learning to see that we is greater than me. This is for the benefit of both of us. When I am sacrificial, when I lay down my life, it is for the benefit of the we. And in the end, you benefit from that. That's the irony. And that's what Jesus taught us, wasn't it? That if you want to be something in the kingdom, then be a servant. And that certainly and mostly, I think, applies to your marriage, doesn't it? Amen. Deborah, so good to have you with us. Uh, Focus on the family cares about you and your marriage. We want your relationship with your spouse to be thriving along with your relationship with Christ. Because when those two things are happening, we're a much better family and we're a much better culture. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, we are doing what we're doing here at Focus. One thing that we've done is create the Focus Marriage Assessment. And it's free. You can go online and take it. It takes about... Five minutes, I think, John? Five or six, yeah. Okay, and you can get an idea of where you're doing well and where you might need to strengthen your ability in your marriage and Mm -hmm. your tools for your marriage. And I hope you'll uh, take us up on that and go take the assessment. Uh, Be one of those who uh, takes that little quiz. It's free. Uh, As Jim said, it's online and it's uh, very practical. Uh, You'll find that and also uh, Deborah's book, Choosing Marriage. Uh, We've got that available for you and a CD or a download or our mobile app so you can listen on the go to this conversation. Uh, All of it available at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast or give a call and we'll tell you more. 800, the letter A and the word family. And of course, John, uh, if the folks can help us uh, by supporting the ministry, we'll send you a copy of Deborah's book, Choosing Marriage, Why It Has to Start with We is Greater Than Me. 
that is a wonderful resource, and we will send that to you as our way of saying thank you for a one-time gift or as becoming a, a monthly giver. Yeah, those monthly gifts really sustain us and allow us to ride out the summer months when things get a little bit uh, tight financially. And so we'd invite you to consider becoming a monthly partner today. There are some great benefits, and we'll describe those online. Uh, but if you're not in a spot to do that, a one-time gift is uh, very much appreciated. We are grateful for anything you can donate today. And once again, our number is 800, the letter A, and the word family. Deborah, thanks for writing this book and for doing what you're doing as a counselor to help couples live a life that is God-centered and healthy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy to have you, and uh, we're so glad that you joined us for this Focus on the Family broadcast. And trust you can join us again next time as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.